real quick before we have a seat. Lord God, we love you. We celebrate your entrance into this city today. Thank you for coming to us gently seated on a donkey's foal. We love you, Lord. We celebrate you this morning. Amen. Have a seat. This morning, we are going to cover a lot of ground real fast. Imagine there is a split screen up behind me. Uh, Our production value is low. But on one side, you're going to see Daniel, the prophet Daniel we've been studying for the last several weeks. He is now an old man. This is probably about 65 years after Nebuchadnezzar first went through Jerusalem, raising it to the ground, taking off the young men, Daniel included, And now he is about 80 years old, maybe, somewhere around there, in his high 70s or 80s. And he's sitting in his upper room, the same upper room that uh, when they caught him praying there before, they hauled him off to the lion's den. That's where Daniel is. So he's there in his room. And on the other side of our split screen, we see Jesus on Palm Sunday riding into Jerusalem. So this morning, we are going to bounce back and forth between these two passages because, not just because it happens to be that Daniel 9 is the next thing in line, but actually what we're going to see is Daniel 9 was very much on Jesus' mind. You want to know what he's thinking about as he's riding that donkeys right through the streets of Jerusalem, and everybody's like, this is the best thing ever. Jesus actually knows what's about to happen because he's read Daniel 9 and he's thinking about Daniel 9 and he's going to talk about Daniel 9. So to help us this morning, to help us keep it straight, that we're going to be in Daniel 9 and also in Matthew 21, I'm going to do one half of the split screen and I've asked my wife, Deb, to cover the other half of the split screen. So if you, if you want to grab one of the Bibles, you want to keep uh, one finger in Daniel 9, the other in Matthew 21, if you're... If you got it on your phone, share a phone with the person next to you. One of you uh, sit in Daniel 9, the other in Matthew 21. We are just going to go back and forth between them all morning long. And so we're going to jump right in. In Daniel 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So Daniel's trying to tell you when this is. It's a little hard to place exactly, but we think... It's about 65 years, roughly, after the invasion of Jerusalem. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word the Lord had given Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So what Daniel's doing is he's reading Jeremiah 25, 11, which says, The whole country will be a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So Daniel has been in Babylon probably 65 years at this point. His his entire adult life. And he's reading the scriptures and he starts to get excited because it's almost over. Could you imagine having a captivity, being held essentially captive? We know Daniel rose to great heights and we know that he had great power, but we also know his life was constantly under threat. He was constantly under suspicion for 65 years. Years and he comes to Jeremiah 25 and he's like, Oh, it's almost over. It's almost over. And at this point, he probably knows he's probably still never going to get to go home. And even if he does, it's burned to the ground. It's not going to look anything like what he remembered. 
but he's excited nonetheless. So how does he react to this good news? What does he do in response to hearing, it's almost over, we've almost served our term, 70 years was due us, we've done 65, 67, who even knows, pretty close to that. And it says, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel looks at the scriptures and he looks at God's promise and his immediate response was to begin to repent. So like Daniel, Jesus is also coming up upon what he knows is close to the end. <laughs> and he's thinking also about the Old Testament prophets. If you will turn to Matthew 21, that's where we're going to take this half of the story. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. So Jesus is thinking also back to these prophecies and how they're going to be fulfilled. And correctly identifying, since, you know, he was there when they were written also, correctly identifying that this king coming, riding on the colt of a donkey, which is uh, not the most impressive of animals, that he is coming in a different way. And how will the city receive him? We know that repentance is the right response to God's coming kingdom, um, as Daniel did. But Jesus was about to face something very different. Look, when God's kingdom comes, the right response is to repent. That's our, that's our big idea for this morning. That's, that's the whole central theme. When God's kingdom is coming, we should be repenting. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Verse 4, says, Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Remember, to confess means to agree with, to say the same thing as. Right? So I want to keep us, keep us focused on these words. To confess is to agree. And to repent is to turn your face in the opposite direction. And that's what Daniel does. He's going to agree with God and he's going to maintain his face, turn in the opposite direction of the sin uh, that the people had committed. It says, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He acknowledges God's rightness right off the bat. Lord, you are right. You are good. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. He acknowledges corporate guilt. We have sinned. You guys, Daniel was like 15 when Jerusalem was judged. All the things Jerusalem did, the idolatry, the killing of the prophets, the injustice, the oppression of the poor, all of these things that Jerusalem had done, their rejection of God, Daniel didn't do those things. He, he wasn't even born for most of it. He wasn't responsible for it. But his first response is, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. His repentance was corporate. He says, we 
us, the people, even though he personally wasn't there, he wasn't alive for it, he didn't do it, he still said, I am repenting from it, I am turning my face in the opposite direction of these things. These things were back here and we used to do these, but I'm looking in this direction. Keep going. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke of the name of, to our kings, our princes and ancestors, to all the people of the land. He acknowledges, God, you're righteous. You told us. You warned us. You said all these things were going to happen. And then they happened. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us, because of our unfaithful to you. Sin is national. Yeah, it's personal. Yes, we personally sin. I personally wrong you. I personally hurt you. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. But it's also corporate. It's also national. More than one thing can be true at the same time. I say that a lot. This is one of those examples. So is sin like a thing that we all do or is it something that I do? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's both things. It's not just one thing. It's not just, ooh, I did a bad thing. It's also we've done bad things. And owning the fact that we're part of that. That's what Daniel does. Verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we've rebelled against him. Again, he's calling it back. He's saying, God, I know what you're like. I know what we're like. We have not obeyed the Lord God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. He acknowledges the consequences of turning away. And verse Uh, Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses. Again, Daniel's reading the scriptures. And in the scriptures, when God gave the people the law, he's like, hey, guess what? If you keep the law, then you do justice and righteousness. You treat each other well and you don't covet and steal and murder and commit adultery and keep the Sabbath. You do all these things, then I will give you all of these blessings. Long life in the land, fruitful crops, peace, prosperity. But if you don't... I'm going to send plagues and famines and armies, and you're going to get carried off. That's what Moses told the people. That's what God promised the people, blessings and curses. And Daniel's just reading the scripture saying, "Uh uh-huh, a lot of prophecy, a lot of prophecy was just the prophets reading the scriptures and applying it to what was happening in their day. So they were, he was reading the law going, huh, the law says uh, if we do this, then these things are going to happen. That's what Jeremiah is doing when he's like, oh, an army is going to come and carry you off. There's a huge army outside. He looks at the people and he's like, well, there's a lot of crazy sin going on here. Big giant army coming. Uh, You know, this is a huge chunk of prophecy. Just treating God's law, God's word as if it were true and applying it to the present circumstance. And that's what Daniel's doing. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we sinned against you. I'm as guilty as my father's. I'm no better than them. No, I wasn't alive. I didn't stone any prophets. I didn't steal any vineyards. I didn't oppress. I I didn't do any of those things. But my fathers did, and my grandfathers did, and their grandfathers did, and I'm really not any better than they were. I'm the same kind of person that they were. So I'm going to repent, and I'm going to acknowledge that it was wrong. You have fulfilled words spoken against us and our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it was written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. 
The Lord did not hesitate to bring this disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, and we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who you brought, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and was made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we've sinned, we've done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn your anger away from your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. Now, God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look on favor. Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We don't make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. God, save us, not because we're good and we deserve to be saved, but because you're so merciful. Look, this is Daniel. There's probably, what, not two or three people more righteous than Daniel in the whole of Scripture. Almost everybody. You can go right down the line. Almost everybody in Scripture has got pretty big major sin marks against them. Daniel, actually almost nothing. The Bible records no major faults or failures of Daniel. So if anybody could be like, God, I have been righteous and faithful in the worst possible circumstances. Have Save me, God. I deserve this. It would be Daniel. But that's not what Daniel says. He says, please, not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy, save us. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. I love it. It's so simple. It's so direct. He's just like, please do a thing, God. I've been living here for 65 years. Bring us home. For your sake, my God, don't delay because your city and your people bear your name. The only proper way to respond to the fact that the kingdom is coming is to repent. You know, and I usually save all my applications for the end, but this is like so on the nose. We're going to do this one right now. If you want revival, if you want healing, if you want things to be glorious, if you want prosperity, then repent. Repent not just for your own sin, but for all of our sin, all of our natural sin. Turn away from the collective rot that's in our hearts, that's in my heart, but also in our hearts and also in our hearts. It shouldn't be that hard to repent of things that we didn't do because if you're really faced the opposite direction, it's pretty easy to be like, yeah, that stuff's awful. Lord, I repent of that. We did terrible things. This is true of us as a country. It's true of us as a church. And I'm not going to over-interpret this. Daniel's speaking specifically about Israel and the things Israel did. But if you can't figure out how to apply this to our national moment, if you can't figure out how to apply this to things that the church and our nation has done, I got nothing for you. I'm not responsible, blah, 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 blah. Great. If you're not responsible, it ought to be real easy to repent. It should take you, it should be super easy. If you're not responsible for the injustices and the cruelties and the things that we've done as a church and as a people, if that's not on you, awesome. You're already turned the other way, great. If you think that stuff was evil and awful, awesome. Then it's easy to repent. God, that stuff is evil and awful. It's awful that we were unjust to one another as brothers and sisters. It's 
awful that we have had racial injustice and inequality. It's awful that we have a legacy of 400 years of slavery. It's awful. It's awful. It's awful that we fight wars and we've had genocides. It's, all these things are awful. I repent of them. It's okay. You weren't alive, no problem. Should be easy then. It was easy for Daniel. He had no problem with it at all. He's like, yeah, that stuff is bad. God, forgive us. It's repentance and confession isn't about self-flagellation. It's like, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I did these bad. It's not what it's about. It's about agreeing with God. I confess. I agree. Yeah, we and God, you and me, we see this the same way. And it's about repentance. I'm not looking at that anymore. I'm looking at you. I'm turning away. Repentance and confession for things that we've done as a people, it's only hard if you refuse to acknowledge that you're in your heart not any better than your ancestors. Because we're not. People today aren't better than people used to be, right? <laughs> we're, we're all made of the same stuff. So for us to repent as a people for things that happened before us shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be controversial. It should be pretty obvious. We make these requests not because of our righteousness, but because of his great mercy. God's kingdom is coming, and there's only one right response to it, repentance. The people in Jesus' day had a, a little different approach, and I'll be honest with you, I can kind of relate to it because I like to s actually skip over that part. Like, sure, sure. No, things were bad, but let's get to the happiness, right? Because that's what I'm all about, right? Let's move past that part and on to the part where we get to, like, celebrate the happy ending. Um, and that's kind of what they were trying to do, right, in, in Jesus' day. They tried to skip past that part. Look at Matthew 21, carrying on from where we left off before in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And they were excited. This was it. I, I can't imagine the whole city, the whole city, was excited, right? They all got, they just heard this stir. And I'm sure some of them were like, what's going on? Oh, cool. Oh, really? The Messiah, great. And then they came along and then more people heard. And then they came along and they're shouting and they're celebrating and things are good. <laughs> and this is the very next passage, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. <laughs> he overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So the kingdom is here. It's happened. The king is literally riding into Jerusalem. 
And they're excited about that as an idea, about salvation, about power over their enemies, about all the things they thought the kingdom of God was going to bring. But no one repented. They cheered. He's here. He'll get rid of all those other evil people, and we will get to rule in their place. And then he rides up to the temple courts, and he doesn't find anyone there in repentance. Not even just that he doesn't find them on their knees in sackcloth and ashes, weeping over their sins. He doesn't find anyone turning the other direction and behaving any differently at all. <laughs> he finds them there still making money off of the worship of God. <laughs> That's what he finds when he walks into the temple. And he's not, he's not having it. They wanted this power of God, this excitement, this like victory over their enemies. They did not want to change the way that they lived their lives. Only the blind, the lame coming for healing and the children singing praises while he did it even while he drove people out of the temple apparently they were the only ones who got it that they had to come humbly and repentance was the right response Daniel's crying crying he's sitting just covered in ash and sackcloth and he's begging God let us go home Please, please let us go home. I'm sorry. We did these things. I acknowledge it. I know it. And the heavens open, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. What happens when we repent? What happens when we open our heart and like, God, I'm wicked. We're wicked. Save us. What happens while I was still in prayer? Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. The angel Gabriel visits him. God sends his messenger. He opens the heavens and sends a holy one to come and stand with Daniel. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went, went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Daniel accepts God's authority over his own life. He accepts God's authority over the lives of his people. He repents and the heavens open to show him the mysteries of the universe. Repentance is the only right response to God's coming kingdom because it acknowledges God's right to rule. When he acknowledges God as sovereign, God's judgments as just and wise, we got what we deserved, Lord. Now have mercy, now relent. Suddenly, with that acknowledgement of authority, the heavens are opened. And the future is revealed. It's fascinating the way this happens in Matthew. Jesus also begins to run into issues of authority. Let's just read starting in verse 18. Early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. <laughs> And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. 
And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus understood authority completely, right? He'd already been teaching with authority, Matthew has said, for a long time. He already had met a, a, a centurion at one point who understood authority and explained to it, hey, I'm a man under authority. I have those under authority with under my authority. When I tell them to go, they go. When I tell them to come, they come. Jesus understood authority and what it meant that he had the authority of heaven. It meant that he had the right and also the power to make what he said really happen, <laughs> right? This is authority, that he has the right to tell you what to do and also the power to make it happen. <laughs> so much so that he can walk up to a tree and say, may you never bear fruit again, and it withers. He can ask a mountain to be cast into the sea, and it will. And he's saying to his disciples, that spiritual authority, the authority that comes from God, is mine and could be yours. And then he goes into the temple courts. Verse 23, he entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus knew they were trying to trap him. <laughs> he replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it was of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Right? You're not going to fall into the trap, me either. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing this. Because they knew where the authority was coming from. They knew his authority was coming from heaven. They just didn't want to acknowledge it because that would have uprooted everything that they were doing. That would have had caused them to need to repent, to turn from the things they were doing. They were making a lot of money off of those sales in the temple and all of the other things. They, they had all the respect by making rules and tying up heavy burdens and placing them on people's backs. And they had, they had all of these things. This was Their life was good. They didn't want to turn away from it. And they knew if they acknowledged his authority, they would have to repent and turn. And so they didn't. God's kingdom was coming, and they refused to acknowledge it. Now the angel Gabriel is going to tell Daniel the future. And these verses are very much on Jesus' mind as well. So let's look at Daniel 24, not, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. He says, 77s, and we put this in quote, the word... Sometimes it's translated weeks, but it means units of time, right? A, a week is a group of seven days, right? So it doesn't mean weeks. It means 70 groups of time, right? 70 groups of seven years. 70 groups of seven are decreed for your people and your city. This is what Daniel's praying about. He's praying about Israel. And so he's going to show him, hey, look, here's the future. Here's the future for your city and your people. So I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to Israel. To finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, everything, right? This is the history of the rest of the world. 
that Gabriel's going to show Daniel, right? I'm going to show you how we're going to put an end to sin, finish transgression, atone, create everlasting righteousness, seal up all vision and prophecy. This is it. Here's the rest of human history, Daniel. This is what you get for your repentance. You get to know the whole end of the story, everything else that's going to happen. Know and understand this, verse 25. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. About 490 years. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. The suffering of the king was inevitable. We flip over to the next slide. I think we'll see as close as I can get to a timeline. These dates are real fuzzy for a lot of different reasons, right? The, the calendars don't match. The lengths of the years don't match. But near as we can tell, this is basically the timeline. 605 B.C., Daniel 1 takes place, Jerusalem sacked. We think that one we know pretty well. Everything else gets a little fuzzy. This is Daniel 9. It's probably about 540, right? So it's been about 65 years. Remember, it's B.C., before Christ, so all the years kind of go backwards, right? So the order to rebuild Jerusalem from Ezra 711 is going to happen about a about 100 years later. The people will start to trickle back several different waves. But the actual order to rebuild Jerusalem, it's still about 100 years away. So Daniel really is never going to get to see Jerusalem anything like what uh, he originally saw. The crucifixion is probably A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, one of those two years, and if you kind of know, 450, somewhere around 458 to somewhere around 30 or 33, we're talking 490 years. The people knew the Messiah was close. They didn't know the exact year for the same reasons we don't. Time and history got really fuzzy and how you were counting, but anybody who had been aware, diligently studying the scriptures, would have known it's about that time. It's about that time. And what does Gabriel tell him? The anointed one, the ruler is going to come. It, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. The goal of all of this is to put an end to sin. These prophecies for Jerusalem, the point of them are to put an end to sin and atone for wickedness. And the angel tells Daniel, the anointed one's going to come and he's going to die. He's going to get cut off. The reason for all these prophecies is because repentance is the right response to God's coming kingdom. I'm telling you this because we're going to put an end to transgression. We're going to atone. We're going to make up for all this. But it means the anointed one is going to die. And Jesus was under no illusions about what it meant, right? The people may not have understood, but he did. Continuing Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenant to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servant. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. And last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. 
Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. He knew how this was going to play out. He knew what was happening, right? It's all there in all of these prophecies that, that in the end, that he would be the stone the builders rejected. He is the cornerstone on which everything is built, on which everything is anchored and everything lines up to in the kingdom of God. But also, they rejected that stone, and he knew that that's what was going to happen. He tells this whole story, right, which couldn't be more on the nose, and clearly they understood what he was saying at the time, right, that God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and now he sent his son, and they're going to do even worse to him than they did to the prophets. He knew. And no, nobody probably knew exactly how to keep precise calendar time from Daniel's prophecy all the way up to Jesus entering Jerusalem that same week. They didn't know it then either, but they sensed that it was time. <laughs> the blind and the children knew that it was time, right? They were singing and they were, they were praising, they were coming to him to be healed. They knew that it was time. And yet the others who were there were thinking, now there's still a way to stop this. There's still a way to stop this, right? They refused to accept the inevitability that Jesus had accepted of what was going to happen. They thought they were going to find a way to stop it, and they wouldn't repent. Because they wouldn't repent, because the anointed one would be cut off, Gabriel keeps talking. Verses 26 through 27. There's more calamity to come. Think about this from Daniel's point of view for a moment. He's like, man, we've, we've almost made it. We've almost made it. We've almost survived. You know, we, we, we're going to go, and Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, and it's going to be great. And the angel Gabriel says, the people of the ruler who will come to will come destroy the city and the sanctuary. This, destroy the city and the sanctuary? There's no city in the sanctuary. It's already destroyed. Oh, yeah, they're going to rebuild it, and then they're going to destroy it again. <laughs> This is the cycle. We keep talking about these things keep happening. These cycles keep happening throughout time and history. Same thing. It's going to come again. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. And desolations have been decreed. He'll confirm the, the people of the ruler who will come. The ruler who will come will confirm a covenant with the many for one more seven. Remember, there's 70 sevens. 69 of them take you right up to Jesus. Then the clock stops. And there's one more seven left. There's one more seven left for the Jewish people to receive the end of wickedness and the end, and atonement and for all these things to be sealed up. So there's one more seven. So a ruler's going to come. He's going to have a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of a seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at that temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. More 
terrible things are going to happen to your people, Daniel. Just know, I'm going to send the ruler. I'm going to send the anointed one. But a ruler is going to come and he's going to wipe everything out. You're going to lose, the city is going to be gone again. Sanctuary is going to be gone again. And then more horrible things will happen. And there will be one more seven left. So just keep in mind, more things are happening. Because repentance is the right response to God's coming kingdom, and because they wouldn't repent, there would be more horror yet to come. And this is what Jesus is thinking about as he rides into Jerusalem. And Jesus actually references Daniel's same prophecies then. In Matthew 24, just become, before they come to grab him, to crucify him, and Bobby talked about this some last week that um, he, he lays out again, what are these things that are going to happen? So he says, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when the disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. I imagine they were just admiring how amazing it was. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Um, like us, they're very curious to know, like, exactly when can we expect this uh, destruction of this temple? Like, help us get prepared. And he says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginnings of birth pains. So instead of telling them, like, in 430 years precisely, they will come and rip the temple down, he says, be watching. Be watching for this, right? Here's what you're going to see things that you constantly see that we've seen, as Bobby said last week, over and over again, wars, rumors of wars, famine, uh, nation rising against nation, earthquakes. Okay, that sounds familiar. Drop down to verse 20. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So again, he's like, not giving you a time frame here, but I'm telling you, it's going to be truly horrible. I hope it doesn't happen in winter. And, but don't worry, right? I know, right? Hope, pray that you're not pregnant when it happens and that it's not winter when it happens. Um, but also know that the time will be cut short, whatever that means. It won't be too long. It will happen. It will feel horrible and you'll wish it was shorter, but God will cut it short before it absolutely destroys everyone. That's something. At that time, if anyone says to you, <laughs> if anyone tries to predict for you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Turns out that is possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. He's warning you. It's going to be, they're, they're going to be saying, they're going to come, false prophets saying, it's me, it's now, this is the time, that's the time. It's going to be in 40 years. It's going to be, and don't believe them. And then verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. 
As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he's pointing back to nature, right? He's saying, look at the fig tree. Look, when the, when the trees start to bud, as they're doing right now, you know spring is coming. If you can look at a tree budding and know that spring is coming, you can look at these signs and know that the thing is happening. There's not a calendar. There's not like a countdown clock. There's just signs that things are coming. And I... <laughs> I can't help but feel like in that these things happening so close together is intentional, that when he points to nature, he's not like, look at the little flowers that grow up, or like he specifically references a fig tree. Remember that fig tree <laughs> that he cursed, <laughs> like not that long ago, that he walked past and it wasn't bearing fruit, and he cursed it? Because it had budded in season, right? It had grown its leaves just as it was supposed to. It, it had recognized the signs of spring and grown leaves, but what did it not do? It did not bear fruit. And so he cursed it. Rather than it continuing to grow and bear fruit and him enjoying its fruit and whatever, it had no fruit and it was cursed and withered. And so it is with these, with the inhabitants of Jerusalem of that day, right? They recognize the signs enough that they could go out in the streets and sing songs, but not quite enough to bear fruit, not quite enough to repent and turn away from the way they behaved so that a week later when the leaders finally uh, came around and found their methodology and found a way to get him, the people swung right the other direction, right? Completely fickle, the fruit was not there. The leaves had budded and it was really pretty there for a while, but no fruit, no fruit happened. Because that doesn't happen without repentance, without true turning. Um, John the Baptist had told them in Luke 3, right, that you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's where the fruit comes from, from true repentance of heart and turning away. And when we don't do that, all the praising and hosannaing of Jesus in the world is just words, <laughs> unless we turn our hearts and we walk in a different direction. And so the cornerstone of the kingdom... They were going to reject it. And it would not be the anchor that they would be built on. It would be the stone that was going to crush them. So what do we do? What do we do? We do the same thing that Daniel did. When we read these prophecies, when we see prophecies in the Old Testament, we start doing the math and start being like, wow, this seems pretty bad. seems like these might be the, the last days. We're hearing all these things that Jesus said about well, then the right response is the same response that Daniel had. We repent. We want revival, renewal. We want salvation from calamity. We want to be saved from the evil times. Then we repent. We repent. We rend our hearts. We tear our hearts open and we're like, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things I did. I'm sorry for the things we did. You're merciful. We repent and we humble ourselves. And we don't try to understand the time or place. We don't spend our energies parsing when and how and looking for some kind of magic key out of these prophecies to tell us what's going to come or to use as a, as a weapon against others. We just 
except that our job is not to know the future or predict it, right? I was telling my MC this week that what impressed me as, as uh, um, Bobby was teaching through Daniel uh, 8 last week was that after he had that first prophecy, Daniel was bedridden for days. Like a small glimpse of the future was enough to wipe him out. And so I thought, it's probably just as well <laughs> that we don't know exactly what's coming. Apparently, we couldn't handle it. <laughs> We just couldn't handle knowing what was going to come. But that's not the point. Knowing the future was never required for walking the path that we're required to walk. Just facing the right direction. That's all that's required. We humble our hearts and we turn the correct direction and we start walking. And we don't worry exactly about the time that that will be. Finally, don't be on the wrong side of the inevitable. It's coming. The king's coming. You're, you can't stop him. He's coming. He's on his way. And when he comes, you can be like the blind and the lame, desperately crawling up to him, fumbling around in the dark just to try to touch him. You can be like the little children, laughing and singing as he punishes the wicked, overturns the tables, like, yeah, that's awesome. It's about time we got those folks out of here. This is great. We can be like that, or we can be angry that our kingdoms are overturned and that our authority is challenged, that someone's daring to call us to repent for things that we didn't even do. I wasn't even there. I didn't even do that. It's inevitable. He's coming. It was inevitable that he was coming to Jerusalem. It was inevitable that he was going to die. It's inevitable that he's coming back. It can't be stopped. It happens right on time. Even when we lose track of the exact year or time, we can look at the tree and we can say, yeah, that's right. We can look at the, all the signs he told us, all the things to look for. They're all happening. They've been happening for a while and they'll keep happening. But it's inevitable. He is coming back. And so this is the choice. We humble our hearts. We bend our knees. And we say, God, not because we're righteous, but because you're merciful. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. We're ready. We're ready. We're not waving the palm fronds and shouting and hallelujah. We're bending our knees. We're bowing our heads. We're repenting and we're ready. And we're ready for you like Daniel was. So we come to communion. As appropriate this week as any week, right? Where we celebrate him coming to Jerusalem and we know what was going to happen. It was inevitable. He was always going to be cut off for us. He was always going to be cut off for us. And so we come and we take his body and his blood and we say, not because we're righteous, but because you're merciful. And we acknowledge that we need him because we're not better than our fathers. They were sinners and they stoned and killed the prophets. And so are we. If God saves us, it's because he's merciful, not because we're righteous. We acknowledge it, we say it, we own it. And with thanksgiving, we take the body and the blood, knowing that that is what will save us. And we see the whole heavens open and all of time unfolds before us. And we know how the story ends. And we know there's bad days to come, but we know we'll see the end of them because of the body and the blood. That time will be cut short because our king's coming back. You can't stop it. It's inevitable. Let me pray and then we'll take communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
We thank you that you knew when you wrote in how the week was going to end. You knew where it was going and you know where this is going. And Lord, we just say to you, not because we're righteous, but because you're merciful. Remember us, Lord. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Join us as we sing this next song. It's a oldie but goodie, but it is, um, as I was think, listening to Deb, a good song that can turn us back in the direction in, in which we need to face before the Lord as we continue to walk this walk of faith. So I just encourage you to join in or just allow the words of this song to minister to your heart as we just have a heart of repentance and a heart of renewal so that we can continue to be the representatives that God called us to be. This is my desire to sing that verse again. This is my desire. This is my desire to
let's sing this like a prayer from our own hearts. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I Most of us is something that we do habitually. It comes online. If you're visiting, we're not looking for anything from you. But it's just a moment for us to acknowledge that our changing of direction, our repentance means something. It has physical consequences. It's not just feeling bad, right? It's, it's tangible. And we share together our wealth because it's part of our hope. And we share it with other people. And... We recognize this each week, like rhythm, like clockwork, to remind us that the things we believe have real-world consequences. So read with me, if you will, the underlined portion of our liturgy. King Jesus came humbly on the back of a donkey. Let us give generously to the humble people of our King. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Can we sing that to the Lord? There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Let's sing that one more time. There's no shadow. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. No wall you won't tear down, coming after me. Oh.
for he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? gas cards for for groceries and food available really really excited a lot of you guys have come to us and been like hey i need i've got friends that need this or there's people at my work that need this that's great that's what we want come and ask 
Um, come ask me and I'll, I'll hook you up. Please keep asking. It's Friday night, Good Friday service. Friday's coming. It's a night to repent together, to mourn together because Sunday's coming right after that. So Friday night here at six o'clock, we will celebrate the darkest night in human history when our Savior gave up his life. And we'll celebrate that together. And we'll mourn and we'll cry together so that we can rejoice next Sunday because Sunday's coming because his return is inevitable. His return from the grave was foreordained. It was always coming and it came. So we will celebrate that together. Let's leave you with our benediction, our good word for the road. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior, peace be with you. Your breath in my lungs, so we'll pour out.